Hello and welcome to this latest edition of The Internationalist, Higher Education Matters, a podcast from the Association of Commonwealth Universities. I'm Natasha Locken. In this series, we're looking at the responsibility of universities to confront both the past and the present. I'm asking who gets to learn and who gets to teach in today's society where the legacy of empire is still an open and often painful issue. Universities are places of learning and have a critical role in creating open and fairer societies, but they also reflect the world in which they operate and they can even reinforce inequalities. In today's episode, the final one in this series, we're talking about international collaboration in higher education. Universities work by sharing ideas and people across borders. They are dependent upon this. It's how knowledge is created, shared and built upon. But the nature of the global economy means that universities in the so-called developed world, the global north, are the ones with the money and therefore the power. They have the means to fund projects around the world and to support academics and students from different countries. So how can we have a system of collaboration that is fair and that allows universities in the global south to enhance their capabilities and ultimately to have a more equal relationship with those in the global north? To talk about this today, I'm joined by Kirsty Kaiser, Implementation Manager at the Research Fairness Initiative, which is based in South Africa. Hi, Kirsty. Hi, Natasha. Thanks for having me. And Professor Imran Rahman, Dean of the School of Business at the University of Liberal Arts, Bangladesh. Imran, I'll come to you first, actually, to sure. ask, given obviously that you're working at a university in the Global South, this, this, this notion and of collaboration between universities in the Global North and South, in practice, do you think these relationships are actually collaborative? They are collaborative, but, uh, you know, the degree of collaboration and the, there's an unequal element to them. But yes, I, I would say, by and large, they are collaborative. So I wouldn't be too negative about it. And what do you think, um, if I may pick up on that point about some elements being unequal, um, what, what, what are some of those elements, do you think? Well, I suppose one is the fact that language is an element, publishing is an element, you know, in terms of research design, the, the sort of participation of the Global South uh, during the phase of designing the research questions could be higher than it usually is. So these are some of the critical things which make the relationship an unequal one. And is that a picture that you recognize, Kirsty, from your experience? Yes, so I definitely agree with those points. And I think those are kind of very aligned with the individual researcher at a certain level. And I think there is also the level of like institutional imbalance. So for example, ability to deal with research contracting and the ability of Southern partners to be able to actually negotiate those partnerships and ensure that they are also getting some kind of benefit out of them that is beyond, you know, um, having, for example, a lab built or, having some PhD researchers trained, which are all very important things, but I think there's a lot more to it. Can you tell us a bit more about your work at the Research Fairness Initiative and how you're, I guess, trying to address those imbalances? And you spoke about at an individual and an institutional level. Are you operating at both of those levels or how does that work? Yeah, so the RFI, the Research Fairness Initiative, was developed by CoRed in 2016. Um, CoRed is the Council on Health Research for Development, but essentially what we've done is we've created a reporting tool that helps institutions to kind of assess where they are at with regard to a number of different aspects of partnerships and helps them to also plan for how they can improve in those areas. And 
So it is very much for the institutional level rather than for individual researchers or individual projects. And yeah, like I said, we just try and help institutions, not only from developing countries, but also higher income countries to kind of improve the equitability of their partnership policies and practices. And Imran, do you think that this initiative like RFI, and it's interesting that it is targeted at, it's targeted at universities in low, middle and high income countries, do you think an initiative like that, how far does it go, to, I guess, to addressing the issues that, that, that you spoke about and the ones that you're facing at a university level in Bangladesh? To be honest, I had heard of it and uh, I actually just looked it up an hour back I think we need uh, something like this because individually, you know, Global South researchers are talking about the decolonization, you know, they're writing papers, this and that, but it has to all come together. So I think RFI has an amazing mandate and I'm sure RFI doesn't have a, a foothold in Bangladesh. I'd be happy to connect, you know, some of the, my researcher colleagues and friends with RFI. And if I can just uh, mention something that, you know, you asked about the inequality. I think I need to make a distinction between, you know, hard science research like engineering research or, you know, research in biochemistry and stuff like that. I think the problem is more acute in, in the humanities, social sciences research because, you know, there's so much more leeway in terms of, you know, what should be the priority in the research focus or in the research questions. Whereas in something like engineering, I would think that, you know, there'd be probably far greater agreement from both the Global South and the Global North researchers about what are the important things to in a particular research. That's my kind of layman's interpretation of that. So if, if I understand you correctly, Imran, you're saying that that sort of, because, because humanities, social sciences, there is, more, there is more leeway, as you said, there's more room for manoeuvre. You feel that that has an impact or the imbalance in power, I guess, in the relationship between, between universities can come out as part of that. Is that right? I mean, if I can think of in Bangladesh, what are some of the collaborative researches about? A lot of it is about, you know, climate change adaptation, etc. because we are one of the hardest hit countries uh, in terms of the global warming's effects. Then on, on poverty, growth, microcredit, you know, all these things, even, even medical research at the village level or something. So... It seems that there's too often the research questions seem to be formed, formulated or, or framed somewhere else, somewhere outside the actual geographical area or the, you know, or the social or ecological setting in which the research projects are, are supposed to be anchored. And that means from the get-go, the research design, often the Global South researchers feel that they're working on a project which is asking perhaps not the most important research questions can I jump in there? Because I think that's like a really good point. And it's something that we definitely address with our tool. And it's something that has come up in conversations that I've had with other people who are interested in this area. And I think there's a, there's a significant problem of research not actually being in line with priorities of the communities where the research is actually happening. And I think very often research priorities are not necessarily determined by the Southern partners, or they don't really necessarily have a say in what those priorities should be. And I think that's an area that is specifically needs to be addressed to make sure that the research is relevant and has impact and it can be done in a way that is sensitive to the communities where it is taking place, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I think that's a really good point, Imran. And yeah, it's definitely something that I have come across in my conversations about this type of thing. It's interesting to sort of, I guess, take that point further and elaborate on it and reflect on how much the imbalance, the inequality, the the issues that might prevent a collaboration being equal, how much that's about money and the source of funding and where that comes from and how much it's actually about decision making and who has that power. And Imran, I don't know if you if you had thoughts on that, bearing in mind what we were just saying about research design specifically. Yes, I mean, uh, I mean, money will be and continue to be an, an important determinant factor about who has the, the the relatively more power in the in the relationship. You know, countries like Bangladesh, where we have so little of, I mean, it's piddly amounts of domestically sourced research funds. We have to depend on funds coming into the country from abroad. Now, a lot of the funds come in different ways. I mean, for example, you know, Bangladesh is a major recipient of uh, multilateral, you know, donor funds. You know, World Banks of the World and the Asian De- Development Banks, the DFIDs, the USAIDs, etc. And these projects often have a research element, but these are these are not very independent because <clears throat> they have a mandate. They are they, they have a connection with whatever is you know the goals of the particular project. But even in these cases, the local uh, researchers have very little leeway. But sometimes what I find that, like we are working, we are talking to a, a very good university in the USA about participating with them. And the US team actually includes a Bangladeshi who is a full-time faculty member there. So that has actually helped the question, you know, because, of the, because the team itself has a Bangladeshi who is a full-time academic in that university. So that is one great way to kind of, you know, get more kind of say from the global south because he knows what the situations are. He knows he knows both the uh, donor country research interests and he knows what are the priorities for the host country research as well. So this is one interesting area that, so it's not all doom and gloom. There are cases where, where actually we can see some changes coming about, but these are far and few between. I definitely wanted to touch upon that, as you say, the, the, it not just being doom and gloom, but looking at solutions and what, is there an ideal model of international collaboration? Is there just one model, for example? Kirsty, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. And, and if, you know, how, how might we get to, to this model or models? So I think at the moment there maybe is not a model, but I think that we're on our way to getting to one. So I know that for what we're trying to do at CoRed, what we would essentially like to happen over time and as we get more institutions using the RFI tool, etc., is that eventually we'd like to develop standards of good practice for research partnerships that would help institutions to understand actually what they should be doing if they want to be good partners. But I think getting there will involve really taking into account that low-middle-income country partners need to be treated more fairly, they need to be treated more equitably, and it is about decolonizing these kinds of research partnerships. So it deals with things like, you know, like I said, priority setting, management capacity, financial management capacity, data ownership, IP rights, you know, all of these issues that come up within partnerships are, it is possible to find solutions for them. And I think that we are on our way there. And there are many institutions who have recognized the need for this to happen and are trying to work towards it. So it's really just about gaining this kind of momentum towards a better future for research partnerships. 
And can you give us an example of what good practice looks like in one of the areas you identified? Sure. Um, you were talking about, you know, financial management or IP rights or, you know. Yeah. So, for example, um, if you think about data ownership or IP rights, I'll give you just a very broad example without naming any names. But we had some institutions in an African country who went through the process of using our tool and they they all produced reports. Only one was published in the end. Um, because the others just never got around to publishing their reports. But with those three reports, we found that all three institutions within that specific country, not one of them had a template for material transfer agreements. So they were busy doing research with partners and none of them had material transfer agreements or any kind of legal or contractual obligations in regard to that. And so we were able to identify that for them And now their own government has actually gone and put a material transfer agreement into place that then all institutions in that country are able to now use um, as part of their research partnership and collaboration practice. And Imran, your thoughts on on the ideal model or models of international collaboration? Our most effective partnerships are those with institutions where co-designing is built into the project. Global researchers are themselves well-versed in the need to decolonize the research academy. Also, I would say that mandating capacity building for Global North researchers along these lines would be probably a good step forward. And what would that capacity building look like? What would that involve? Or do you, I mean, do you think there's something specific that, that, that should be mandated as part of that? In terms of building capacity, it's very important to also think about it as a long-term thing um, and something that should be sustainable. And that... Capacity should be built in terms of systems rather than just, you know, a lab or training a student or, you know, that kind of thing. So ultimately, the capacity building should really be focused on helping LMRC institutions to be better able to manage research themselves, um, to be able to, for example, apply for grants as the PIs and actually be successful in getting those grants. And yeah, and being able to have the capacity that they are able to innovate following whatever the results of their research are. Um, so, for example, if a vaccine is found through research in an LMIC, why can't that vaccine be developed within that LMIC rather than somewhere else and then brought back? So I think it's really important to think about like the sustainability of building those capacities up and making sure that they are long-term a long-term thing rather than something that will be there for five years and then following that it's not useful anymore. So I think what you're saying is in some ways if we think about collaboration between universities we might think about you know research projects that involve specific researchers or departments we might think about institutional agreements but I guess what you're saying Kirsty is that it's it goes beyond that it is about sort of systems and and the working and in some ways through collaboration between universities it can really have a wider impact as well I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I think what we also have to be a little bit careful of is, you know, we don't want LMICs to become charity cases because that's not what they are. And I think we also need to see some more investment from them themselves in their own research systems. So it shouldn't only be about, you know, high income countries giving funds to try and develop low income countries. It's about there being true collaboration on that point to help them to become better able to manage on their own. And Imran, does that 
bearing that in mind or, or thinking about that framework, is there a collaboration that, that you know of um, that you think is working well at the moment? Yes, I, you know, I, I can think of several, including one in my university, which is working well, where uh, we, it's basically related to climate change research. And, uh, you know, we don't want to be a charity case, but they're actually, we found out in one of our uh, collaborations, and this was with a fairly, uh, you know, a good uh, UK university, which is far older than we are. We are actually, uh, our university is only about 18 years old. And we found that they were good in some things, but we were better in, in, in something which I'd never figured. And that was in applying for international grants. So there's definitely an element here of appreciation, as you say, of the sort of skill sets that are on both sides and, and an understanding of where those strengths are and harnessing them. And I guess before you get to that, it's about coming to the table without assumptions, I suppose. Uh, I don't know whether you know this, but uh, universities like ours, which is a private university, and uh, private universities came about in the early 1990s. We are still not allowed to offer PhDs and MPhils. So that means we... You know, we are not being able to uh, develop or increase our capability to do research. Having said that, some of our faculty members who are doing research actually got their PhDs and their training and even worked in the global north. And, uh, and now they're, you know, they, their skill set in some cases would be comparable to the skill sets of our global north partners. But sometimes, you know, there is a feeling that that is not recognized. They kind of, we are kind of branded together in an alarm rather than looking individually into who's bringing what into the, you know, the, the research negotiation table. Kirsty, did you have any reflections on that? Yeah, so I think that's a very good point. And I think that, you know, there's often this misconception that high income country partners are the ones that have all of the knowledge and all of the expertise and that type of thing. But I think we often forget that the Olmec partners provide kind of expertise and knowledge at the local level, which is often, you know, something that if a high income country partner had to come and try and do the research on their own, you know, they wouldn't know how to access the local populations, how to interact with them, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there needs to be this knowledge that Olmec partners are also skilled they are also skilled and they also definitely have something to bring to the table but I, I'd also do feel that sometimes the Elmic partners don't recognize that within themselves too. So I, I did want to ask what you think the barriers are to change or what, or what needs to change to move us forward you said that it's about you know you are seeing good practice we are seeing momentum what needs to change in order to to to, to really drive this forward? So I think that there's very often fear on the side of the lower income country partners. They're afraid to maybe show that, you know, their, for example, research management capacity might need some work or some development. They're also afraid to say something if there is inequitability because they'd rather have the funding, for example, than, um, you know, not be able to be part of a collaboration because they know that funding is important for their own development. So I think... I think from that side, it's fear. And then I think from high income country sides, it's probably, I think very often there is an acknowledgement that there's a problem, but there might be some universities or institutions where they're scared of acknowledging that because they don't want to seem like they are inequitable or colonialist or anything like that. So 
I think fear plays a pretty big role on both sides, but I think we just need to move past that and understand that, you know, this is for the future and, you know, we have to get past that and be transparent and open and accountable to one another. And that fear, Imran, is that, is that something that you that you recognise, that you agree with? That there is this fear on both sides, which I think is interesting. Yes, I, I would say there is fear. And I think also within Bangladesh, uh, you know, universities need to collaborate with each other instead of just working on their own. We need to have platforms where we can band together, have a bigger pool of resourceful research, you know, and skillful researchers. That's something which hopefully will happen. And thinking about the specific context of Bangladesh, which is a rapidly sort of developing and evolving country, but also faces challenges, and you spoke about climate change as an example. How do you think the changes that are happening within the country are going to affect the relationships that that universities like yours have with universities in other countries? You know, what might things look like 30 years from now? And also thinking about this idea of of working together um, collectively as well. I can already see, uh, you know, that even in this short time, even in my university, that we have been able to make some modest, but at least we are now collaborating. Right now, I would say we have uh, four or five international collaborations, which was unthinkable 10 years ago. So things are moving forward. And I think uh, I'm hopeful that at least in Bangladesh, will make a bigger impact on research. We are still far behind in terms of publications. And that's another area, basically, which we don't talk about, where where there are also problems. Uh, and one of the papers I was sent by one of my colleagues was on, there's apparently a demand for having a triple blind system in terms of publication. Normally, as you know, the peer review system uses a double blind system. But the triple blind system is where, for example, even the editor would not know the uh, identity or the affiliation of the author until, until the end of the whole process. Kirsty, do you think that's something that would help? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether it would help. Um, maybe it might help. I think that often, though, the problem of authorship starts with the collaboration itself, though, and Almic partners not necessarily being involved in the whole process as much as they should be. But maybe, maybe having a triple blind system could work. It's an interesting idea. It's 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 certainly one to 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 think about and uh, for the future. I think it's been really interesting today to look at what collaboration really looks like at at an individual level between researchers and also more institutional levels as well and thinking about the challenges and how how an imbalance between universities plays out at those different levels I think also what I've learned is when we're talking about change and and addressing some of these challenges there's a real need for the approach to be sustainable and for there to be kind of long-term solutions that that don't just build the capacity of institutions, but that also result in more relevant outcomes and impacts for, for, for those communities and, and those who the research is for. I'd like to thank our guests for today, Kirsty Kaiser, Implementation Manager at the Research Fairness Initiative, and Imran Rahman, Dean of the School of Business at the University of Liberal Arts, Bangladesh. And this was the final episode of the series. 
We've covered so much over these past six episodes. It's been really incredible. We've looked at what the phrase decolonizing higher education actually means. We've talked about curricula and how to create a sense of belonging within universities. And we've even discussed colonial symbols and reparations. So if you haven't already, please do have a listen to the previous episodes and let us know what you think. We hope that this series of The Internationalist Higher Education Matters has been valuable. But most importantly, we hope that it's made you think a little bit further about these topics, which are so relevant to our lives right now. The Association of Commonwealth Universities is committed to highlighting the issues that influence learning and teaching in our world. Please do subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts and like, comment and share the programme. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. Just search for the Association of Commonwealth Universities. Thank you for joining me, Natasha Locken. The producer is Lindsay Riley, executive producer Richard Myron, and it's an Earshot Strategies production.